remember when I was a kid and I'd go to the carnival or amusement park, somebody would always want to take me to the fun house. And I always wonder why they call the fun house the fun house. And for those of you who are new to Wichita, you do need to know that uh, when the first settlers came to Kansas in the covered wagons, there was an amusement park in Wichita called Joyland. And <laughs> <laughs> I used to take Jonathan and Jared there where they were real little and everything, and we'd, and, and we'd go to the fun house and and I'd, I'd go through the little, you know, little cart that would take us through that for all of you old, you know, all of your Wichitans. And you, I, I'd get to the end of it, and i think, what was fun about that? <laughs> I didn't find anything fun at all, because the problem was it wasn't the fun house, it was the distortion house. Nothing was what it appeared to be. And it could be that you're living in a world that feels like the fun house, but it's no fun for you, too, because things are not what they appear to be. And here's what I mean by that. If you're living in a, a fun house, a distorted house, w- w- what's going on is there's a story in your life or with your family, and everybody on the outside believes one story, but that isn't a true story. You know there's another story. Things are not what they appear to be. And part of the, the life that you have to live deals with the tension from, or the tension that, that comes from people on the outside not really understanding what's going on and you having to prosecute and deal with what, what's really going on. Well, today, in our story that we close out our series, Strange But True, we're going to look at a story that Well, there's an outside story. There's a story that we can read pretty fast and pick up, but there's so much more going on. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to walk us through the story, and then I'm going to do that pretty fast, and then I'm going to back up, and then we're going to look at what's really going on in the story. And here's the thing that, here's the reason why I've seized this fourth story for us to close out on. I really believe at some place you're going to find yourself in this story. I know you are. In fact, it's impossible for any of us to go through this story and not find ourselves somewhere. So if, if I do worry about that every once in a while because I'll talk on a topic and I'll think, well, this doesn't really touch everybody, I don't worry about that at all today. I promise you, when you came in today, this talk is going to talk to you and to me. It's the story of Paul and Silas, and if those are new names to you, um, these are two of the very first missionaries. The church has not been going for very long. Jesus has ascended back to heaven. He has started his church. It's ramped up. It's been very successful in Jerusalem. It's bled out in times of persecution to other surrounding cities. But God strategically pulled out of the church leadership team several leaders to take the good news of Jesus Christ and to go to places that wouldn't normally be places where you would assume that a church would begin. And Paul, who was the most effective of these, is with his partner Silas, and they are on their second trip starting churches around the known world, and they come to a city that would be in modern-day Greece, called Philippi. And Philippi was a Roman outpost city. And by that, it doesn't mean that it was isolated or excluded. It basically means it was a very important city. There was a military garrison there. There were training institutions there. There were universities there. There was a great deal of of commerce there. It It was a very modern city. In fact, probably you and I would find a lot of similarities with Philippi, if we were to compare it to modern-day Los Angeles or Chicago, it was sort of that in the culture that existed. So you can imagine what a wonderful place it was for Paul to think about starting in church. Now, in those days, when Paul would go into a community, a lot of times that community would have a division between Jews and Gentiles. Paul was a Jewish person, but he was also a Roman citizen. And so what he would do when he would go into a city and brand new, he would hope to reach people who were not Jewish, but he would often start with people who were Jewish like himself, who had the benefit of the Old Testament. And so the reason for that, this morning you want to know perhaps, but he could open up the promises of the Old Testament, and then, of course, those would point to Jesus Christ. 
And so when he went to Philippi, he didn't find a very large Jewish community. What he did find was several Jewish businesswomen, very successful businesswomen. And he met with them since there was no synagogue there. If there was no synagogue, people, Jewish people met beside the river. So Paul went down by the river in Philippi, and there he met some, some very good businesswomen, women who knew how to make money, women who were successful. And for, you know, a lot of times we think that that's pretty much a modern phenomenon, but it's not. And especially there was a particular woman named Lydia who was very, very successful. And when she heard the good news about Jesus Christ, instantly her heart was open and she received Christ. And so Paul basically began the Philippian church, and we won't talk about this today. My favorite book in the Bible is Philippians that was eventually written to the church there. The Philippian church got started in Lydia's house. So for a while, everything's just cooking with gas. I mean, everything is going great. The church is up and running. There are, you know, not a lot of people there, but people like Lydia and people that really get it and, you know, new springers. That's, that's what's there. But upon a day, Paul and Silas are walking through the marketplace, and things go south in a big way because they start getting stalked. And of all things, they're getting stalked by a young woman. I don't know how she was, maybe 15, maybe 20, 25, I don't know. But this woman starts stalking them. Now, it's not that they're in fear for their lives or anything. It's just that what she's doing is annoying. Let's read about it. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Now, first blush, you might look at that. When I was a kid, I used to hear this story and think, what, what are Paul and Silas unhappy about? Because they're going into Philippi, of all places, and here's this girl who comes up behind them and starts saying, these guys are here to tell us how to go to heaven. But it wasn't like that at all. Clearly, her shouting had a harassing quality to it, had a mocking quality to it. And not only that, I think Paul and Silas figured, A, either she's going to get tired and go away, or she's got an emotional disorder. And they thought, hey, this will dry up and blow away. So they walked around town and just tried to keep their focus, and all the time this girl behind them is shouting. And finally, Paul gets exasperated because in verse 18, it went on day after day. And stop for a moment there. If you're like me and you read the Bible and just stuff causes you to question what's going on, I'm thinking, why did it take Paul several days to deal with this? But I, I tell you what I think it was. You know, it's so easy for us because we read the Bible, read it from the back. I don't, think, I don't think Paul knew what was going on. I think it took him several days to find the story behind the story. All he knew is he was being stalked and harassed. But when we start reading, we find out what was really going on. Because he got exasperated, he turned and he said to the demon within her. The problem with this young woman was that her life had been taken over by a, by a demonic spirit, by a fallen angel. And so Paul began to realize, hey, this is more than just a girl who wants to harass us. This is more than someone who's, who's struggling with an emotional disorder. This is a person who has a satanic spirit in her. And so he turns and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. But there's even more to the story. Because what you and I need to know was that this city, Philippi, was a center of the occult. And there was a very strong occultic presence in Philippi and very strong occultic worship. And evidently what had happened was this young woman had yielded herself and her soul over to the dark side long enough to where she had been intensely afflicted by the dark side. And because of that control that it had over her, 
Something about her caused people to believe that she could tell the future, and people would come to her to be a fortune teller. Verse 16, she was a fortune teller, and the Bible says she earned a lot of money for her owners. I mean, think about this. This girl is so successful, she doesn't have a single owner. She's owned by a syndicate. This is like an organized crime syndicate, and their one business is this girl. Well, the change must have been awfully dramatic because it made the owners furious. The Bible says the master's hopes of wealth were now shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas, dragged them before the authorities of the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. Have you ever noticed, and we'll get ahead of ourselves a little bit, and I'll get right back. Have you ever noticed that when a user gets mad because he can't use the person he's using, he'll always invent another story? I mean, a user will never say, I'm mad because I can't use her anymore. A user will come up with something else. And that's what happened with these guys. They couldn't use this girl anymore, and they didn't want to go to the marketplace and to the town officials and say, we're mad because we can't make money out of this girl anymore. They invented a story and said, you know what these guys are doing? They're causing us to get all screwed up, and Rome is going to come over here and start kicking backside. And they got everybody scared. And so Paul and Silas were stripped in the middle of the marketplace. They were beaten with wooden rods. In fact, the next verse says they were severely beaten. There was no limit to how many stripes could be put on a poor person in those days. They didn't know that Paul was a Roman citizen. They just thought they could treat him however they wanted to. And a lot of people didn't survive the beating. They beat these guys nearly half to death. Severely beaten. And, and for some of us who are Americans, we can say, wait a minute, they haven't been tried yet. You do need to understand that back in those days, that in these cultures, with poor people especially, with people who had, and by the way, I guess this still happens in our world sometimes, with, with people who had no influence, that they were beaten before the trial. There was a Latin word for that that's very similar to our word coercion, which means that we're going to beat them, and then they will give us the testimony that we need to hear that will allow us to convict them. Very convenient but also very brutal. And so after Paul and Silas are beaten nearly to death for doing a good thing, they get taken to the jail. Focus on that. And they get turned over to the jailer. Jailers in those days tended to be, in, in, a, in a city like Philippi, a guy who was over jail, they tend to be ex-military. Some of you are ex-military, and you've leveraged what you learned in the military to take it on to a new career. And that's what happened with these guys who were, were, were wardens over a prison. A lot of times they were ex-military guys who had basically retired from the field, and they had taken the job. But a lot of the military protocol still continued, and it was such that if a jailer lost a prisoner, any prisoner, he had to substitute his life for that prisoner. So they take Paul and Silas to the prison, to the jail, and to the jailer they say, guard these guys carefully. These are dangerous guys. And so guarded were they, they were placed in the inner prison, which is the most innermost chamber of the prison. And historians tell us there was no air circulating in there. It was a brutal place to be. And then on top of that, just for good measure, their feet were placed in stocks. Now when I read this, I had sort of this Nathaniel Hawthorne view of stocks from early America, you know, where their arms and legs are like this, but that's not how the Romans did it. The Romans, with their stocks, they spread the feet as far apart as possible so that there was pain inflicted while a person sat in those stocks. Rome wanted to make sure they had your attention. 
So now Paul and Silas are in the prison. It's midnight. They're there because they did a good thing. And, it, and, and the thing of it is they don't, you know, they can't sleep because they're in way too much pain. Their backs are beaten. They're open. They're bloody. There's sweat, salty sweat is pouring into their wounds. Their legs are spread as far apart as possible. What do they do? Well, the Bible says around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners said, would you guys shut up and let us sleep? Is that what it says? No. The other prisoners were listening. In other words, there was something about what Paul and Silas were doing that were causing the other prisoners to say, wait a minute, we're not going to go to sleep here. We're going to listen to what these guys are doing. Suddenly there was an earthquake. The Bible says the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. Well, you know why now? But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. Weirdest thing of all, these prisoners, who their chains have fallen off, they just sat still right where they were. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with them and with all who lived in the household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and sat a meal before them. And he and his entire family and household rejoiced because they all believed in God. That's the story. And it's a good story. I've loved it all my life. But there's so much more here. Because here's what's interesting. If you hear that story, it's the story of Paul and Silas being put in jail along with a lot of other prisoners. But I want to challenge you to think about the fact that everybody in our story is in some kind of bondage. Everybody in our story is in some kind of chains. And with that in mind, I want to back up again and I want to walk through here and I want to challenge you to do something. I want you to see yourself in this story. Because I don't know where you are. I know where I am. But somewhere in this story, you're there. And you need to hear what we're going to say in these next 20 minutes. Well, let me start with one group of people in the story. These are people that are the least likely to change. They are the owners. I want you to stop and think about the owners for a moment. The guys who own this girl and used her. If you're an owner here today, and I'm going to assume there aren't too many who would come to New Spring, but it could be that you are an owner and, and you, you manage it carefully and cover it easily. But it could be you're an owner here today, and what you're all about is using people. And the truth be told, if you were to tell it, is that the only reason why anybody is valuable to you is if they're of use. And when they're not of use anymore, you discard them. You, the odd thing is you're good at making friends. You've made it a lifelong, you've made it a lifelong purpose. Because if you weren't good at making friends and building relationships, well, you wouldn't be able to use people. Your relationship would never deepen enough for you to be able to use them. So you're really, you're really good at it. You're very outgoing and charismatic, and people look at you and say, you know, he's the most awesome guy in the world. I refer back to what I said at the beginning, because if you're married to one of these guys, you know that everybody in the town thinks this is the greatest guy in the world, and you're thinking he's a user. Or everybody thinks she's the most awesome woman in the world, and you're thinking, but I know her. I live with her. She's a user. Users use people 
as long as they're valuable, and then they cast them aside. And the problem that we have with our users in the story, the owners, is that they don't change. And what I find significant about that is that we have some really unusual people in our story. We meet a demon-possessed girl. We meet hardened criminals. We meet a coldly efficient career jailer. And yet all those people change. The one group of people who don't change are the users. There's little hope for a user. But notice I didn't say no hope. If I've caught you here today and you're honest enough to stop for a moment and to say it is true, I use people, I want you to think about that for a moment. Some of you use people for sex. Let's be honest. You use people for sex. You know how to make them feel valuable long enough just to get what you want. You know how to do it. You know how to make, them, you know how to make her feel like you understand her. You know how to make her feel like she's the most important person in the world. You know how to leave a little rose by her workstation. You know how to send her that little email. You know how to give that little reassuring squeeze. Wow, you're good at it. You really are a pro. And it works. And you use her until she's no longer useful. And then you pick it up and you go somewhere else again. Or you use him. You use people for sex. There are people that use people for money. They have lots of relationships, but really the purpose of their relationship is somewhere along the line to make some money. And, and if they determine that they can't make money out of a relationship, then they need to move on and find some, some better candidates. There are users who use people, of all things, to, to build their ego. This is the only reason why they have relationships in their life is they want to hear things that feed their ego because their insecurities are so powerful that the only reason they use people is to tell them something that makes them feel good about themselves. I think it's really important for us to talk about this one because we're getting close to Thanksgiving and Christmas. There are people who use members of their own family to get their own way. They want their own way so bad, they will use their own sons and daughters. They will use their own family. And some of you, I mean, if you were to be honest, you would have to say, I know what it's like, Mark. I, I dread seeing Thanksgiving coming because we're going to have to deal with Mama. I dread Christmas coming. And the reason why you dread it is you know good and well you are being used. And if you are one of those kinds of users, you know you can move people around like players on a chessboard to get your way. Could I tell you today that if you use people, there's a big misconception. You think you have to keep them enslaved to get what you want, but what you don't realize is you are the one who is really in chains. Are you listening to me today? You are the one who is in bondage. If you have to use people to get sex, you're in bondage to sex. If you have to use people to get money, you're in bondage to money. If you have to use people to get your ego fix, then you're in bondage to insecurity. If you have to use your own family members to get your way, you're in bondage to some sort of strange image of what a perfect family is supposed to look like. And so I would just say to anybody here today, and, and hopefully this is a really small community here at New Spring, but if I've talked to someone who is a user here today, let me just tell you this. It's not likely for you to change, but you can change if you'll own up to it and be real about it. And if you go to God and say, God, I am really sorry. I just realized today I've been using people. I thought I had to, but I'm in bondage to this, and I don't want to be in bondage anymore. And by all means, tell God you're sorry, and then please, please, in the name of Jesus, Set your slaves free. Set your slaves free.
Quit making your husband a slave. Quit making your wife a slave. Quit making your kids a slave. Quit making your in-laws a slave. Set your slaves free. There isn't a great deal of hope for a user, but if they'll get straight, God can help. Now, for many of us here today, we will not find our symmetry with the user. We'll find it with the girl because she is on the other end of the equation. She knows what it's like to be used. And I could be talking to somebody here today, and you know what it's like to be used. Now, think about the evolution of how this usage took place in this girl's life. Here's what happened. Watch. I don't think she became demon-possessed overnight. I don't think anybody does that. The only reason why anybody becomes demon-possessed is they open up their life to the dark side. They open up their life to sin and Satan. So I'm guessing that when, her, when, when she first had a foray into the occult, my guess is that she was just experimenting. It was just, uh, just to see what it was like. You know, I mean, everybody's doing something like this, and so I'm going to just see what it's like. And so she began to experiment. But all of a sudden, the time came when she realized that it had become to, begun to control her. And from that point on, she became easy pickings for the owners. It's still that way today. There are people in sex traffic because they just experimented with the wrong kind of sex. And the next thing you know, they're addicted to it. And they become easy pickings for the, for the users. There are people here today never intended to get hooked on drugs. You said at a party, somebody said, try this. You said, I can try anything once. And you tried it and you opened yourself up to it. But somewhere along the line, you just found yourself keeping on using it until it began to control your life. And now you're easy pickings for anybody who's selling and it could even be a lot more white collar than that. You know, I think about how many of us are hooked on possessions. Gosh, Madison Avenue does this to us. You know, I mean, we, we begin to let this, we begin to let possessions into our life as, as if, as if our, our identity is tied up with this possession. And before long, it begins to control us. And there's nothing really all that nefarious about this. But the next thing you know, we're standing in line for 24 hours waiting for a cell phone that won't do much more than ours will do. How does that happen? Being used, being used. Now, what I find interesting here is that Paul was exasperated, but not with her. Look at this. Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, get out of her. See, don't you find this interesting? This girl had been harassing Paul for three days, but Paul knew she was not the problem. And here's the reason why I make this point. Some of us we have stuff in our life that we know are wrong. We have allowed the dark side into our life. It's begun to control us, and now we're easy pickings. And whenever we hear a message or we read the Bible, it's as if, oh, God hates me. You need to know God doesn't hate you. He hates the damage that's being done to your life. If you use drugs today and you can't get off, God doesn't hate you because you use drugs. He hates what drugs is doing to your life. If you're, if you're hooked on unhealthy sex and you're on all kinds of unhealthy relationships, God doesn't hate you. He hates the damage that the, drug, that the, that the illicit sex is doing in your life. See, some of you guys, here's the deal. The first time you used pornography, you weren't even looking for the site. It just popped up. And you're just looking around, and, and all of a sudden this pops up, and it catches your attention, and your curiosity is, well, let me just check this out. And first time you did it, you knew it, it made you feel sleazy. And if you're married, you thought, wow, this, my wife would just be, she'd be so hurt if she knew I was watching this. But you kept on, and after a while, it begins to control your life, and now you're easy pickings. But if you're there today, you need to know that God's not exasperated with you. He's exasperated with what porn is doing to you. 
He's exasperated. He's hurt by the damage that it's doing. You need to know God's not angry at you. If you're being used today, God is angry about what is using you. And I could be talking to somebody here today, and you say, Mark, that is me. I'm being used. But it's too late for me. Oh, I've heard that so many times. Gosh, Mark, if I could go back and be 15 again. But I'm not 15. I'm 40. I can't go back. You know, Mark, if I could go back and meet different people, if I could go back and hang with a different group, if I could marry somebody else, it's just too late. I can't put all the pieces back together again. You know what? That's true. Anybody who tells you you can put all the pieces back together again, I hate to say it, but they're fibbing to you. What if you could start over? What if you could start over? Maybe you've been used ever since you've been a child. But guys, remember something, please. God didn't make you to be used. God didn't make you to be abused. If I'm talking to a young person here today and you're being sexually abused by an older person, could I just please tell you, God did not make you for that. There is no reason, there's, there's no important, significant reason in the world for you to ever be abused by an adult. And please, tell someone in authority about that today. God did not make you to be abused. You, and you may be 45, 50 years old, and all your life you've been easy pickings. But could I tell you something? God did not make you for that. He made you for a different destiny. What if you could start over again? And you say, I can't start over again because I'm me. Really? I mean, I could tell you about Jesus talking about being born again, but let me tell you one that I think is even more effective for us today. Many years before Jesus was born, there was a prophet named Jeremiah. And one day God said to Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house because I want you to see something that you need to see in order to preach. And here's what he said to Jeremiah. Whenever the pot the potter was working on turned out badly, as sometimes happened when you were working with clay, the potter would simply start over and look at this, use the same clay to make another pot. When, when, when a vase goes wrong, as it sometimes will, as some of us have, God doesn't throw away the clay. He doesn't, he doesn't mash it up into a ball and throw it into the pan. Instead, he begins to make us over again. And that's what I'm saying to you today. If you've lived a lifetime of being used, you need to know that God has the power to make you over again if you'll come to him and say, God, please give me a new, fresh start. I don't want to be used anymore. Very quickly, the third kind of bondage is real apparent, and that's physical bondage. Paul and Silas are put in prison. And it could be that you're here today and you find yourself when in the story, you're, you're like Paul and Silas. You did the good thing, but now you're the bad guy. Anybody been there? You said the good thing, but now you're the hater. You told the truth at work, but now you're on the outside looking in. Everybody finds you a troublemaker. You just did the responsible thing, and now you're the bad guy. I'm guessing that every parent here has been in that, in that place. But it could be that that's where you find yourself in the story. You did the good thing, and now you're the bad guy. Now, here's the thing. Real quickly, we're going to just move through this because I need to finish. What, what do you do when you're, you've done the good thing, but now you're the bad guy? Well, you can do several things. You can focus on the injustice of it because clearly Paul and Silas were getting what the owner should have gotten. 
And they could have said, this isn't fair. Or they could have quit. They could have said, God, if you want us to be missionaries and we have to go through this to start a church, then we quit. Or they could have just cried about it. I mean, obviously all of us would have been fine with that. But they didn't. Here's what you and I need to take away from this. What is it that Paul and Silas need? Here they are, beaten half to death, legs spread apart in stocks, salty sweat pouring into their wounds, heart, and they're put there with hardened criminals. What do they need? Do they need to cry so that they will feel better? Or do they need power? Do they need something to happen there? See, here's what I, I want to learn today. Help, help pray for me that I will learn this. There is no power in, in crying about injustice. There is no power in why me. There is no power in whining. There is no power in quitting. There seems to be power, especially in one thing, and that is when God's people will praise their God in the difficult times. There seems to be power in that. Why is there power in that? Well, many years ago, I began to hear a verse when I was a kid that said that God inhabits the praises of his people. And that is taken from the Old Testament in the authorized version that says, O thou that inhabits the praise of Israel. So it could have been that when Paul and Silas started praising God, they said, we need God to come in and be in this jail with us. And you guys who are really, old, really young, you won't remember that in the earliest days of contemporary Christian music, there was a group called the Imperials. And the Imperials had a song that went like this, alert. Praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise him. Praise the Lord. For our God inhabits praise. Praise the Lord for the chains that seem to bind you, drop powerless behind you when you praise him. Now, that's a very powerful statement. God inhabits the praise of his people. The problem is it's not a complete translation. Because the Bible doesn't just say that if you praise God, God will come and live in your circumstance. The actual words say you are wholly enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In other words, when God's people praise God, God not only comes and inhabits that place, he comes and takes charge in that place. Why did Paul and Silas sing at midnight? Because they need an authority change. They, they were under the Roman authority. They were under the town authorities of Philippi. These guys, Paul and Silas, needed God to come and take charge. And so they did the one thing that would bring God to take charge. And evidently God said, i got to do something about this. And he said, an earthquake so powerful the doors fell open and the chains fell off of all the prisoners. Do we need an authority change? A lot of you guys, I don't know how you feel about the election. Some of you could be very happy. Some of you could be very unhappy about it. But I, I ran into so many people that are miserable about the election this last week. Guys, let me just tell you something. There's no election that can change this nation. We need an authority change. We need God. I mean, what if God's people started praising God? What if God's people started lifting him up? What if God's people started to do the right thing, even if it cost them? What if God's people started praising him, even if they suffer for doing the right thing? That's how we get an authority change. Well, it could be that you find yourself, and I've got to finish in three minutes, so we'll just go real fast here. It could be you find yourself in the prisoners. I think the prisoners are pretty smart guys. I, some of the smartest people I found are in jail because going to jail caused them to get very smart. And I look at these jailers and these prisoners, you know, why, why was it that they listened to Paul and Silas sing? And why did they stay when they could have run away? You know what these, these prisoners figured out? They figured out everybody's in their own private hell. They, they, they saw the owners of this girl, and they thought, well, he's in his own jail. 
And they saw this girl, and she's in her jail. And you see Paul and Silas get arrested. Now they're in jail, and we're in jail. And they saw that crusty old jailer over there, and they thought, well, he's in a jail of his own. These, these prisoners kind of figured out everybody has life the same. Is that you tonight or this morning? You, you've come here and you figured out, you know what, nobody's any different. Nobody has anything different than I have. Those people at church, at religion, they don't have any, and if you're talking about religion, you're right. Those people at church, they don't have anything different than I have. If they have Jesus, they do. See, I think that's what caused the prisoners to listen. I think that's what caused them to escape because they thought, you know what, these guys have been beaten half to death and they came in here and, and they're singing. There's something different about these guys. And we like what they've got. We like so much what they've got. We want to we listen to them sing even if the jail doors open up and chains fall off. We're not leaving these guys because they have something different than what I have. I hope you feel that today. Well, I only saved one minute for the reason why I preached this message. And the reason why I brought this message to you is I think some of us could identify with this jailer. He wasn't a bad guy. I don't think he was a bad guy. I think he's, I think he's like a lot of military guys. He's just doing what he's been taught. He's just doing what he's been trained to do. If he was the one who actually put the whip on these guys, then I think he was just doing what he was trained to do. If he, if he spread their legs apart and put them in stocks, that's just what he was trained to do. I mean, that's his job. But he and his family were miserable. And it was like, life is supposed to be cruddy. Life is supposed to be bad. I mean, I've lived long enough to where I just believe nobody's supposed to be happy. And I'm not happy, and my family's not happy, but I'm just doing what I've been told to do, and I'm bringing in a paycheck, and I'm keeping food on the table, and I'm just going to mark time until I die. That's the jailer. Do you know what I love about this story? It's like in a minute he realizes he's been wrong about life. In a minute. I mean, it's like, here's the thing. Some of us, for coming to Christ, it came to us in time. For others of us, it'll happen in a moment. You'll walk into a service like this, and you, and you just walk in like this jailer thinking, nobody has, it doesn't, life doesn't work for anybody. I'm just marking time till I die. But in a moment, somehow, somebody will talk to you, and who Jesus is will become very clear to you, and you'll realize, wait a minute, I've been wrong all these years. And for this jailer, the seminal moment happened at that time, when the earthquake happened and the prison doors blew open and all the chains fell off and this jailer is just sure all of his prisoners escaped. He's got his sword out. If you've ever watched old movies about Caesar or anything, you know how that these Romans would hold the sword and run on the sword. And he's got his sword out and 12.15, 12.30 in the morning, he's ready now to end his life. And all of a sudden Paul calls out and says, wait a minute, we're all here. I think it was in that moment where all of a sudden that jailer said, what is it that causes these guys to sing? What is it that has caused everybody here to stay here even if the chains have fallen off? There's something here bigger than Rome. There's something here bigger than Philippi. There's something here bigger than my job. I want to know what it is. And he fell down before Paul and Silas and asked the question that I find only one time in the Bible, and that's very precious to me because of the one time he asked it. It is the straightest forward question about how do I know I can go to heaven? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, it's interesting to me because there's a very similar question in the Bible that another man asked, and he made Jesus mad by asking the question. 
It was the rich young ruler. And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now juxtapose those two statements for a moment, those two questions. What must I do to be saved, and what must I do to inherit eternal life? Don't they sound pretty similar? They're as far apart as heaven and hell, and I'll tell you why. It's pretty, break it apart and you'll, you'll catch it too. The guy who said, what must I do to inherit eternal life, he is looking toward God and saying, what do I have to do so that you will owe me everlasting, to inherit Tell me what I need to do so that you will owe me. And everybody who's trying to work their way into heaven by being good, it's the same deal. God, tell me what I have to do for you to owe me. Man, this poor old jailer was asking this question. What do I need to do to be rescued? What do I need to do to be rescued? I'm a poor, hopeless guy who in one moment has figured out life. I've had it all wrong, and now I want to have it all right. What do I have to do? to be rescued, and they replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And I won't read it again, but you know the story, how the, Paul and Silas went home and shared the good news. Not only this guy accepted Christ, his wife and kids accepted Christ. And that night, they all did the thing that Christ followers do when they accept Christ, they were baptized. And the Bible says that probably for the first time, there was great, great joy in this house because God had come to live in this house. At the end of the day, the jailer was covered with chains, invisible chains, but they fell apart. It could be that that's you today. You know, I was thinking about this jailer, and, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in overtime. I'm so sorry about that. Um, I was thinking about this jailer. You know, there, there was another guy that it, he made me think of. About two and a half centuries ago, there was a young man full of attitude, infidel, didn't believe in God, hated God, atheist, Horrible guy. Nobody liked him. He just had so much attitude, he, he caused everybody to hate his guts. And he grew up as son of a sea captain, so he made his living by buying and selling slaves. And he would go to Africa and round up natives and put them in chains, put their necks in chains and wrists and legs in chains, drag them onto a ship. Most of the time, over half the Slaves wouldn't survive the voyage, and those who did survive were turned over to cruel and brutal people who used and abused them. This is how this man made his living. But he was so wicked that he couldn't even do a good job of being a slave trader and made so many enemies that actually at one point he was actually left on an island and became a slave himself. Somehow he got free, probably because of his dad's connections, and he was on a voyage to go home, and there was such a bad storm that he thought he was going to die. And in that storm, like this jailer, he reached out and said, God, God he hadn't thought about for years. And he prayed to receive Christ, and he did on that ship. And years of spiritual growth brought him to the place where eventually he became a pastor. He was actually asked to join in writing some songs. And he wasn't the main writer in the songbook. He just was a supplemental writer, but... He wrote a song, really wasn't all that thought about it at first, but over the years, this song about his life has become very special to us. The lyrics of John Newton's song were, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And the slave trader lost his chains. And if you're here today, could I just tell you that no matter where the story has found you, Jesus, Jesus is there for you. You could be a user, but it's not too late. You could have been used all your life, but he'll, he'll go back to the wheel. The potter will make you again with the same clay. 
could be that you've tried to do the good thing, but now you're the bad guy. Or it could be like the prisoners. You figured that nobody ever has anything good. Or like the jailer, you've just been doing what you've been taught all your life. But for the first time, you realize there's freedom in a person who can make your chains go away. And you may not understand everything about what I'm going to ask you to do, but I'm going to ask you to take a step of faith. I'm going to pray a prayer that reaches out because here's what the Bible says. You remember they, the Philippians said, what must I do to be saved? And they said, whoever believes on, in Jesus, whoever believes, have everlasting life. Now, I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but if you want to pray to receive Jesus, you can do this right now with me. You ready? Pray with me. Let's all pray. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I want to be free from my chains. Would you come into my life and forgive me and make me God's child in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, look up here for a moment, please. If you just prayed to receive Christ, I have a gift I want to give you. All you need to do is bring your card and check, check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Bring it to guest services. There's a gift. It's a book I wrote, a DVD, and a coupon for a new Bible. I want you to have that before you leave the campus today. Now, I know we're in way over time, and I'm sorry for that, but could I ask you to stay for just a few more moments? I'd like you to join me in a song that I think is really fitting for us to close out our service with. Would you stand, please?